Praise God. I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been going through spiritual warfare. Now, I don't know how many of you have been, re, have been uh, listening to the messages, hearing the messages, etc., and are just having a zippity doo dah day, right? That's just what's been going on with all of us, right? Everything's been la-di-da, hunky-dory, right? No, I don't know about you. It's been a rough three weeks, and here comes week four, and I know some of you have it much more difficult than I have it, but Satan is stirring, and he's stirring. And let me share something with you. He does not want us to preach on texts such as this. And we saw in the very first week, right? The very first week we saw, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. They're in an unseen world. In week one, we talked about the hierarchy of Satan. We talked about principalities and demons being one, rulers being another, world, spiritual forces of world darkness. We talked about the demonic entities that roam about and harass and oppress and to the unbeliever even possess. We talked about those world forces of darkness who demons who lynch themselves to world leaders to bring about satanic agenda. And my goodness, do we ever see that happening more so than today? I mean, you just, every day is there something else that is startling. You know, you look and you see something else out there that you're going, oh my goodness, could it get any, any worse than this? And he has set his affection, the he, our enemy, has set his affection, affection in a negative way, against the people of God. If you walk with Christ, you are in his crosshairs. But you don't have to be afraid. That's the whole purpose of Ephesians chapter 6. Is we can stand, as Paul says in verse 12, in God's strength and in the strength of His might. Although tested we may be, we are equipped, we are armored, we have been deployed with ample supplies, lethal supplies, to take down the enemy and to take down the, the devil. Charles Spurgeon has this quote that I love. He says, By this, the elect of God are known, that they love the Word of God, they have a reverence for it, and discern between it and the words of men. This is how we know who believers are. They have a love for God. They have a love for the Word of God. They've been granted discernment, the ability to distinguish between false and, 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 and true spirits. And this becomes even more critical in our spiritual battle. So we've been in this sermon series titled Church Arrives. And we've been looking at Paul's admonition regarding arming ourselves for the battle. And I shared with you that our enemy's sole goal is to get us to impugn the character of God and God's Word. 
Render God not trustworthy. Impugn him. By imputing him means to negate, to distrust, that you have no confidence in whom you have believed. And let me tell you something. The day is quickly and rapidly degenerating to the point that as believers, we have to have a rock-solid assurance in whom we have believed. If we equivocate, if we waffle about this particular truth, we will have nothing to rest on other than our own strength and our own ability. Last week we looked at Paul's command in verse 14 to gird our loins or to prepare for battle, to tie up. And how do we gird our loins? We secure it in the belt of truth. Truth becomes the thing that secures us. And that truth is the very Word of God. God's Word is truth. Remember Jesus' word prior to going to the cross in John 17. Father, sanctify them, He says. Sanctify them in truth, for Thy Word is truth. To gird our loins means to be prepared for battle. Another way of saying it, to gird our loins is to man up, is to buck up, is to get ready, is to dig in because you know that the enemy is going to come. You know. You get sent on a mission. It's not that, hey, maybe the enemy is there. You're sent on a mission and you know the enemy is there. And you know you're going to get into a fight. Scripture then told us last week to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And I shared with you last week that the breastplate covers the heart and the internal organs, the critical organs. Right? And I shared with you that in Old Testament and New Testament imagery, the heart is the center of the desire and the will. And the bowels were considered where emotion comes from. And I gave you an example. I said, we hear this in speech today. What does your heart tell you to do? Or we'll say something like, I got a gut feeling. I got a gut feeling about this. We're even using that kind of vocabulary and imagery in this day. And that is the point. The breastplate of righteousness is to guard your heart, is to guard your will, is to guard your desires, to keep them pure, to keep them right, to keep them holy. And it is to guard against those slashes that the enemy would make to attack your desires, attack your will, and also to attack your emotions. If he can get you into depression, if he can get you into discouragement, if he can get you into anxiety, if those things can create havoc in your life, you're, you're being tethered to Christ loosens somewhat. Remember one thing. One of the things that the enemy wants to do is get God's people one-on-one. -on -one. He wants to get you untethered to Christ. He wants to get into a fight with you one-on-one -on -one because if you go against the enemy, if you go against these principalities, guess what? In and of your own strength, you're not going to make it. But Paul's admonition is put on that breastplate. And I shared with you that righteousness is not your righteousness. It's not a self-righteousness. It's not doing things. But it is standing equipped and complete in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I, am, I admonish every Christian to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The genuine obedience 
and holiness that God provides us to stand against attack. Today we're going to look at three other pieces of armor. We're going to be looking at how we shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel. We're going to be looking at the shield of faith that deflects the fiery missiles. And we're going to be looking at the helmet of salvation. Now, one admonition I'll have for everybody, and I hope you really do this. I pray that you are taking notes. I pray that you're reviewing the text when you go home. You're contemplating on the text right in the margin of your Bibles. I pray that you come to church every Sunday with a Bible and a pencil or a pen or a marker to write in the margins, right? Because these admonitions are critical for spiritual life. They're critical for spiritual life. And I'll share something with you. Everything I teach, I get tried by. It's just the way the Holy Spirit works. So if I teach on putting on the breastplate of righteousness, I'm tried by that the following week. I was tried by the very issues this week. You know, Satan coming against my desires and my will. Satan coming against my emotions. Satan coming with discouragement and and some of the other different things. So the very thing I advocate, I get tried by so that God would have me sure to be utilizing these things. So I encourage you, please, Because it is only in this day of darkness, it is only the people who know their God. Daniel 11.32 The people who know their God will display strength and perform mighty exploits. They'll do mighty great deeds. The people who know their God. It's the only one. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to be looking at verses... Uh, 15 through 17. And for context, I'll pick up from verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's look at verse 15. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Now, one of the most important pieces of equipment of any soldier, any fighting man, are his shoes, his boots. When you go into the field and you go into battle, most of the unit commanders will ensure that you have an ample supply of socks and you are changing your socks with regularity. It's amazing that if you don't take care of your feet, you can disable a unit. And you'll notice that in our military, Right? The boots they wear aren't nice, flat, leather soles. Right? But they're, they're, they're molded soles with grip to give the soldier or the marine or the airman, whomever it may be, traction in the field. They support the ankles. They're laced up. Not just around the feet, but they're laced up high tops, as you would say. To give you security so that nothing goes wrong. 
And um, in the Roman time, at the time this was written, there was no, this is, you're not going to believe this, but, oh, man, oh, man. Can you just be praying that the, uh, the enemy would be still? I'm not making this stuff up. It's just, uh, but in the Roman times, the Roman infantry was the best equipped infantry that there was. And they had special sandals for battle. And these sandals had nails going through the bottom of the sole. They were designed so that the soldier would have traction. He would have advantage. And when they were fighting against some of the hordes of the barbarians, a lot of those were barefoot. But the Roman soldier was equipped and his feet were laced up to the ankles. So it was secure. It wasn't a slip-on. It was held very tightly together. Everything they did was designed to give them an advantage in battle. To shot our feet, as Paul is talking about here, means to bind our feet. To bind our feet. Now, why would he tell us to bind our feet? Look at how many times the Apostle Paul has told us to stand. In verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil one. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm. You think there's a message there? What is he saying? That as believers, when we're engaged in the battle, we first must be able to stand, to hold a defensive line. That's what that means. Hold a defensive line. Why? Because we know our enemy is going to come against us. The enemy is just going to continue to go. So we, as believers, armed and equipped in the Holy Spirit, we are called to stand. Let me tell you, this day and age, we are called to stand. Is it me or do you see the things that are happening out there? Does anybody follow the church and see the things that are going on within the church, within the so-called church? Blasphemies of proportions that I don't think ever have been seen. Many churches that would consider themselves evangelical deny the deity of Christ. They deny the Trinity. They deny the truthfulness of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture. All the things that we are told to hold on to, they deny. And they lean on the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God. And let me tell you something. It's only going to get worse. I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We as a church, are an anomaly. We're an anomaly. I'm not, I'm not putting us on a pedestal. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. What I'm saying for a church to hold to the Word of God, hold to Scripture, hold to the beliefs that have been handed down to us by the apostles and the fathers of the faith, we are an anomaly. We're considered dinosaurs. We're considered archaic. Not to run and embrace every cultural fad renders us as extreme. How do we hold a defensive line? 
We hold a defensive line by shodding our feet with the preparation of the gospel. That word preparation means the readiness of the gospel. We, we bind our feet to the readiness of the gospel of peace. What is that gospel of peace? That gospel of peace is that Christ has paid the penalty and the atonement for all who put their faith in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul said this great in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Doesn't mean we have a feeling of peace. It means we are no longer at war with God. We're not at enmity with God. And if we are not at enmity with God, and if God is our Father our friend, if Christ is indeed our advocate, then think about it for a moment. What can come against us? What can come against us? What could prevail against the believer? Having your feet shod with the preparation of gospel of peace enables the believer to stand in confidence regarding God's love for us, His union with us, and His commitment to fight for us. When a believer is rooted and grounded in the gospel of peace, a believer knows that God is for us and not against us. That we who were once His enemies, He has now drawn near. He has supplied, He has equipped, and He enables. And it is His strength and His might that we fight in. When we shot our feet with the preparation of the Gospel, we're able to say what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. And we're able to say what the Apostle Paul told the church in Rome. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And that's the glorious truth. Let me read to you. This is a perfect illustration. This is a hymn by John Newton. John Newton wrote this hymn. I want you to hear this. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ and God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint, or fainting shall not die. For Jesus, strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though unperceived by mortal sense, faith sees him always near. A guide, a glory, a sure defense. Then what have you to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you, uh, so surely you love that, that love his name and shall in him triumph too. The Lord is our shield. I love that. I, one of my favorite verses I quote quite often, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run in and they are safe. When I feel oppressed in the enemy, the enemy comes upon me, I say the Lord is my shield, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, the rock in whom I trust. 
So to shod your feet with the preparation means to bind yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you bound to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you, you're bound to it if you're a believer in Christ. It's the unbeliever that has a problem. If your faith is based on ritualism, if your faith is based on formalism, if your faith is based on, I used to go to church when I was young, so therefore I'm going to go to church now because I need a little bit of religion in my life then you're going to labor in your own strength. The Lord will not rally to your side. But if you have entrusted yourself by faith in repentance and faith to the only one who could atone for sins, the captain of our faith is right at our side. Look at verse 16. In addition to all these things, what he's talking about is everything he's talked about so far, right? About girding your loins, about putting the breastplate of righteousness, about having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, about standing firm and in in, uh, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. And again, I'm drawing the analogy of a first century Roman infantryman or legionnaire. And that Roman infantryman or legionnaire carried two shields. One shield that he carried was a shield that was circular, and it was two by two. And it was designed for close quarter combat. Close quarter combat. Dagger, not broadsword. Dagger. You may see in the old Roman movies when they go to arrest Jesus, you know, they have this little circular shield that slid on their arm. But there was another shield that they carried as well. And it measured about two feet by four feet. And remember, most of the people at that time were maybe five, you know, five, five. You know, they weren't as, as big as they were today. Um, but this shield, when they marched into battle, they would hold this shield, shield to shield. So soldier, the other soldier's shield would be touching my shield. And it was called a, fa- a, a phalanx. And they would advance, sometimes a mile long, shield to shield. And then when the enemy would shoot bows they would kneel down and each one would cover the other with the shield. So they would have this cross shield that would deflect. And behind this advancing infantry stood the Roman archers. And so as they advanced, as they advanced, the archers would fire away, fire away, and this would continue to advance. This was a heavy shield. It was made out of leather and metal together. But the one thing that it was able to do was able to deflect the arrows that were coming upon them. And this is, this is the concept that the Apostle Paul is putting out there today. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, in addition to all, taking up. That means put it on. Put on that shield of faith. And it has a very specific purpose. Its purpose is to deflect flaming, fiery arrows, flaming missiles that are directed at the believer by who? 
Satan, by the enemy. He's the one who designs these things. He is the one who's shooting away. And the faith that he talks about is not merely an idea or a concept. You know, I, I love the conversations you have with people today. They say, I have my faith. Oh, I have my faith. I do this, my faith. Oh, because of my faith. Listen, as Christians, we don't have a faith. We have the faith. Handed down to us, as Jude says, from the forefathers that have gone before us. And it is that faith that we seek to defend. And your faith is only as good as the object of that faith. And the object of our faith is Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, who rose again. And so we hold to that faith. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Do you know Christ's work is finished? Do you know that? It's finished. It is done. What did he cry out on the cross? It is finished. The account has been paid. All things have been reconciled. It is done. One and done. Atonement has been made for all who put their faith in Christ Jesus. Atonement has been made. And if you are in Christ, you are signed, sealed, delivered. Because of the finished work in Christ. I don't know if this happens to you, but it happens to me quite often. You ever have the enemy come against you? Cause you to doubt your salvation? Cause you to doubt? Look, perhaps he calls, he calls to remembrance your past sins. Maybe he whispers in your ear, oh, how could you be a Christian if you did blah, 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 blah. And sometimes you get a little bit of, you get a little weak need. And you go, oh my goodness. And he gets, a, he gets a moment inside your head. He said, what kind of Christian could you be if you did that? What kind of Christian you be that? Hey, I'll bring in a bunch of people in your church and they'll, we'll tell stories for three hours about what we used to do together before you were a Christian. Does that to me? Does that to me? If I had to stand on my past, I'm condemned within the first 30 seconds. But praise God for how he changed me. And what do I do when that happens? I rest in the finished work of Christ. I say, Father, those things were paid for by the blood of your Son. Satan, you have no authority over me. You cannot accuse. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. When we rest in the finished work of Christ and His ongoing sanctification. By the way, let me, let me make a statement about that. You know how I feel about this. This isn't new to you. But this thing about raising your hand and that's all that mattered. You did that, you know, you did that when you were six years old and, you know, or you did it in a Wana club. But your life has not changed. There is no hunger for God. There's no desire for God. There's no conviction for God. There's none of those things. It is the ongoing sanctification of the believer. Let me make this word real simple. It is the ongoing conforming the believer to the image of Christ that bears 
evidence that a work of God is being done in your life. And if that is not present, I urge you to repent in faith and turn to Christ. Christ doesn't take a man or woman and leave them the same. If that was the case, he wouldn't have told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And the teacher in Israel, Nicodemus at the time, the teacher to the Pharisees, was confused by the statement. God doesn't take a man and woman and leave them the same and just change his final destination. Salvation is not a ticket out of hell. But it is new birth in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul, even though he was a firm believer in eternal security of the believer, admonishes the church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God in you who is working to will. I say that because nobody should take lightly. Nobody should take for granted the work of salvation. Lest on that great day you stand in that throng of people who say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord, did I not cast out devils in your name? Lord, Lord, did I not go to men's fellowship and women's fellowship in your name? Lord, Lord, wasn't I a member of blah, blah, blah church for X amount of years? And you find yourself on the wrong side of eternity. No, 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 no. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Check your heart. Do you desire Him? Do you love Christ? Is Christ the object of your affection? Does He stir you and move you deep down inside to draw nearer and nearer to Him? Is there an end to the increase? Did it end 20 years ago? Did it end 30 years ago? Or are you still in the faith growing deeper and deeper with which there is no end to the increase? And God keeps pulling you and God keeps drawing and you keep going, Oh, Father, give me more. Give me more. Give me more. That's what it means to be in Christ. So we take up the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. And we rest in his provision for us. Listen to a few scriptures. Hebrews eleven six. you should know this one. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those and I like the way the King James says it, of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 7.25 Hence also, speaking of Christ, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, 
who also intercedes for us. The shield of faith. Your faith is only as strong of the object of your faith. And if your faith is in Christ, you bear that shield that is able to deflect the missiles of the evil one. Remember Satan's goal? Satan's goal is to get us to doubt God and His Word. And Satan's greatest weapon to do that is temptation. It's his greatest weapon to do that. Hence, the flaming missiles that come are designed to tempt us, to get us to sin against God. Satan reaches back in his quiver to find arrows that tempt us to lust, to remind us of past sins, to doubt the grace of Jesus Christ that purchased us from that sin, and to aim at our heart and our emotions if we're not covered by the breastplate of righteousness. Anything he can muster designed to cause doubt. What was the first temptation? When Satan went to Eve in the garden. Hey, check out that fruit there, man. God's given you all the fruit, but you can't have that fruit. And, of course, Eve was confused. She said, well, the Lord said, we're not to eat of it, we're not to touch it. God never said, don't touch it. He said, just don't eat of it. And what was Satan's response? Hath God said? Did he really say that? He knows the reason. He doesn't want you to do that because the moment that you eat of it, you'll become like him. That same sin is out there just about with every temptation. We think we're going to one-up God. We're going to one-up Him in pleasure. We're going to one-up Him in desire. We're going to one-up Him. We don't heed that sin is vile. And the greatest, greatest deception of sin is it never delivers what it promises. It promises you joy. It promises you pleasure. But when you indulge in sin, do you find joy or pleasure? You find suffering. You find alienation from God. You find sorrow. You find conviction. Oh, it could be pleasurable for a moment. And it could be pleasurable for a season. But that will, that will not last. All sin results in failure to act in faith to God. That's what it does. And who God is and what He is. Faith is the shield that protects. Listen, Satan even tried that with Jesus in Matthew 4.4 when he tempted Him in the wilderness, did he not? He wanted Jesus to doubt God's Word. Hey, command these stones to become bread. Hey, I'll give you all these things if you bow down and worship me. Right? And Jesus stood firm in the strength of God and in the strength of His might. Proverbs 8.34 says this, Blessed is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. Psalm 18.30, As for God... His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried, meaning it's been through the furnace. It's been tried. It's been tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. God Himself, Christ Himself is that shield. 
1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Pick up the, fe- the shield of faith. It is the faith that overcomes the world. And you know, the Roman soldiers, when they would shoot their arrows, they would take cloth that they would wrap it around the arrow and dip it in pitch and then lay, uh, light it on fire and then shoot it. And as the arrow descended, no matter what it hit, the pitch would spray, causing people to come on fire and things around them to come on fire. Notice here, it says the enemy is doing that to believers. He's sending fiery missiles so that when it hits, it's going to light a fire. The shield is what can defend against that. In Romans 4, Paul speaking of the faith of Abraham. Listen, to I love this. I did a devotional this week for sermon audio on this. Romans 4.17 Paul speaks of the faith of Abraham. It says, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now listen to what it says about Abraham. In the sight of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Our faith rests in a God who is all-powerful. And in all-powerful, God is able to call into being that which does not exist and give indeed life to the dead. Abraham was 99 years old. How many 99-year-old men you know that are having babies naturally out there? They're not too many. How many 90-year-old women that you hear are getting with child? But it says about Abraham, even though that promise was given, and it was given many, many, many years ago, even as he considered himself, he considered all the circumstances around him, he did not waffle in unbelief. He didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong. That's the shield of faith. Having the confidence in God, the confidence in Christ, the confidence that His Word is true, and never, never, never growing weak. Only Christ can provide that level of assurance. And we have to have that confidence that He will indeed never leave us nor forsake us. Let me tell you something. A lot of Christians are moaning about all that we see on the political spectrum. And a lot of people are saying, oh, do you see that they passed this law, they passed that law? Yeah. And here it is. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. People who are passive regarding their faith in Christ, they're not going to make it. There's no more room for passivity in the church of Jesus Christ. It is those who know their God. I've shared this with you before. I've adopted as my life verse Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, righteousness, and justice on the earth. For I delight in these things, saith the Lord. What pleases the heart of God? Silver bullet question to all of Christianity. Here it comes. What pleases the heart 
of God. Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and understands me. Do you know him? Do you understand him? You have a heart from him. And when we do, well, then we have the Lord on our side. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren. And you know what he does? As the accuser of the brethren, he sits there and he whispers to you of all your failures, of all your sin, incessantly. We are in a battle, folks, and we're in a battle until the time either the Lord returns and takes us home to be with Him, or we drop dead and we be with Him. But we will indeed fight. This battle will not be over. But we're covered in the armor of God if we're in Christ. Listen to Isaiah 59, 19, part 2 of it. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God raises a standard against them. Psalm 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in and they are safe. Psalm 27.1, we read it in our scripture reading this morning. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Oh, Christian, if we are armored in Christ. If we bear the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel, wear the breastplate of righteousness, gird our loins with the belt of truth, stand strong in the Lord and in strength of His might, let me submit something to you. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Romans 8.35 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, perilous sword? He goes on to list everything on the creation. In verse 37 he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. How do we conquer? Through Him who loved us so. And he goes on to say, I am convinced, and he goes through neither death nor life, things present, he says, spiritual forces shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And lastly, in verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation. And we're going to stop there because next week we're going to give it all to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But the helmet of salvation Roman soldier wore a brass helmet, had a cheek plate that covered their cheeks, kind of thinned out at the back to protect the back of the neck from sword blows. What is the helmet for? This is the 101, to protect the head. What is the head? It's the center of everything in a human being. If you could go into battle and lop the head off and not have to fight the guy, you're way ahead of the game. If you could snipe your enemy and get a headshot in and kill him and you don't have to get up close and do clo close quarter combat, you're way ahead of the game. Where 
What controls everything? The head is the center of our thought life. It's the center of everything that's there. Paul says that we are to wear a helmet of salvation around us. That we are to be enveloped with the very words and the very truth of the gospel to protect our thoughts. And for the believer, our helmet is our assurance in Christ. Our assurance in Christ. That He would never leave us. That He would never forsake us. That He has indeed saved us. And to get in there, what does He do? He does two things. He causes discouragement and doubt. Discouragement and doubt. Oh, flood the head with discouraging thoughts. Get you to doubt the Word of God. Get you to doubt the the goodness of God. And that's why we have to put on that helmet. We have to secure ourselves. That's why, believer, we have to spend time in the Word of God. You all with me? Look, I used the southern word. You didn't catch it. Hey, praise the Lord. Somebody left. Hallelujah. Yeah, was it that bad? Do this. Make sure your heart is beating. The helmet of salvation. With the helmet of salvation, I have clear vision. With the helmet of salvation, I can give clear commands. With the helmet of salvation, I can sense where the enemy is approaching. I can make wise decisions. With the helmet of salvation, I can read the Word of God. I can be in the Word of God. With the helmet of salvation, I could direct the rest of my body. I could direct my desires. I could direct my will. I could direct my, uh, my affections. With the helmet of salvation, I stand. Cut the head, the body collapses. And Paul's admonition is to take the helmet of salvation. Our Father who loved us, cleansed us, adopted us, saved us, has not left us here to fend for ourselves. He has equipped us in Christ with the blessed Holy Spirit to stand strong against the enemy. And as I said before, we do indeed get attacked. But we need to adopt a different attitude. We are not victims. We are victors. We do not fight for the victory. We fight in the victory. We have been given that victory and it is finished and it is secure. That's why I've entitled this sermon series, Church Arise. Because in everything that we see, all the things that we're going, it's time for the church to arise. It's time to get to the battlefield. A.W. Tozer made the statement, what is lacking in many churches and Christians today is the real sense of the actual presence of God. And I say double, triple, quadruple, amen. He goes on to say, yes, we believe in God. Yes, we trust in Him as Savior. But for some reason, it does not go further than that. Church, we must come to a place where we want God. If we do, we'll encounter many a battle from the enemy himself. But we will win the war. 
and the spiritual places. Let us not live as victims, but let us live as victors. And listen, this is only possible for the person, the man and woman who's been born again. If you have not been born again, if you have not come to that place of repentance and faith in Christ, I urge you, I implore you, you sit right now in a righteousness of your own, and should you go before the Lord in that righteousness of your own, it will be insufficient. You'll face a God of judgment, not a God of mercy. But if you repent and you turn to Christ and you entrust yourself through belief entirely to Him and His finished work on the cross, thou shalt be saved. And you say, saved from what? Saved from God's wrath and judgment. Saved for an eternity in hell. Saved a portion with the demonic and the unbelievers who will spend an eternity in torment. And let me share something with you. Blaspheming God. That's what they do in hell. That's what they do. They're going to be cursing God for eternity. Blaspheming His name for being assigned to this place. And God has said, I've offered My Son. And I've put upon Him the sin of all who would put their faith in Christ Jesus. And if you would repent and turn to Christ, you will be saved. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we um, come to you and we thank you for your goodness and kindness and mercy to us. And Father, I pray that today these words would not have fallen on deaf ears or deaf hearts, but that, Father, we would take heed to your word. May your gospel go forth with authority. May you call unto yourself all who are repentant and desirous to be born again, Lord God. Lord, may you have preeminence in everything. And Lord, may we heed your word for we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.